Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Chapter 7. The Eve of D-Day. During the period of flying training, the commander of the 6th Airborne Division, Major General R.N. Gale, DSO, OBE, MC, was gradually preparing his military plan. In a small shed not far from RAF Netherhaven, he had a large-scale model of the Normandy beachhead, and upon this excellent model the plan developed. In the main, the task of the 6th Airborne Division was to land on the night preceding D-Day, and capture certain positions on the left flank of the main invasion forces to protect the 1st British Corps from flank counterattack. As part of this task, the division would have to capture and hold the bridges crossing the River Orne and the Caen Canal, and to attack and delay any counterattack made by the German army. The whole operation was to be carried out by the 5th Parachute Brigade Group, the 3rd Parachute Brigade Group and the Air Landing Brigade, which was to be Gliderborne. It is not the purpose of this book to discuss the military plan, but it is my purpose to show how the Glider Pilot Regiment carried out the flying and military tasks allotted to it. General Gale sent for me and outlined these tasks. The first two were indeed formidable, for they required, in the first instance, the landing of six gliders in two separate fields, alongside the bridges crossing the River Orne and the Con Canal respectively, in order that the bridges could be captured intact. To be successful, the gliders would have to be released at a great height and land in the darkness as near as possible to the bridges. I immediately ordered concentrated training for this task and asked the Air Vice Marshal if Flight Lieutenant Tom Grant, DSO, could be placed in charge of this training. It was he who had been so courageous in North Africa and who had successfully released Sergeant Galpin onto the bridge at Ponte Grande. Six glider crews were selected from Sea Squadron and began training at Tarrant Rushton, and in order that the gliders might reach the height required, Halifax bombers were chosen as the tug aircraft. A trial was arranged to see if the landing could be done in so small an area, and a similar field to those in Normandy was marked out on the Netheraven airfield. Into this, a landing was to be made by selected aircrews, in front of General Gale and General Browning. The gliders landed perfectly. 
This was in broad daylight, however, but flying some six miles in free flight and finding the fields in pitch darkness was likely to be a different proposition. However, I had full confidence that Tommy Grant would be able to train glider crews to do this. It was agreed that the closest cooperation would be needed between air crews of the Royal Air Force and the Glider Pilot Regiment, and that perfect navigation and flying would be needed. In fact, the whole success of the operation depended on the teamwork between both crews. The most vital requirement was that the tug aircraft should tow the glider to an exact spot and then be able to give a course over the intercom on which the crews could fly to the target. This course and airspeed would have to be given accurately and all the training was therefore concentrated to that end. One night nearing D-Day, a demonstration of the results of this training was given. It was arranged that six gliders should carry out a night landing over a group of trees at Netheraven. The load carried by each of the six was a steel spar of a bailey bridge, which was approximately the weight of the armed men to be carried on the night of the attack. We all stood in a group, looking up into the hazy moonlight, when there was a rushing sound, and, with a suddenness which was startling, one horser came in over the trees, then another, and then another. Suddenly the sixth glider came hurtling out of the darkness, and, mistaking the angle of the trees, landed with an ear-splitting crash on top of the others. There was a frightening rending of wood and metal as they crushed and split, and we rushed over to the heap of wreckage. Astonishingly, except for a sprained ankle, no one was injured. This incident just gives a little idea of the risks the glider pilots took night after night while training for the invasion. The second group of gliders had been allotted a very different but similarly difficult task. It had been ascertained that just by a village called Mareville in Normandy, there was a battery of six-inch guns which could create havoc on the beachhead, and it was imperative that the battery be eliminated before it could blast the seaborne landings and damage them irreparably. The battery was surrounded by a ditch and was fully manned, and what made it more formidable was that the ditch was mined. A scale model of the Mareville battery was built with the double object of allowing the parachutists to practice on it and for the gliders to fly over and look at it. The request was for three gliders to crash land into the middle of this group of guns, and it was to be done at night. Again, a formidable task. I considered this was such a risk that it must be a volunteer job, and I went down to B Squadron at Bryce Norton and called for volunteers. The entire squadron stepped forward, and I had to ask the squadron commander, Ian Toler, to choose the crews. Here again, very special training had to be done, and the aim was to achieve perfection. It was decided that a radio aid called Rebecca Eureka should be used. This was a simple unit in which Rebecca, carried by the glider, could contact Eureka in the possession of the caller on the ground. It was intended that the calling end, Eureka, should be carried by a parachutist, who would be dropped close to the wire surrounding the battery and call the gliders down onto the battery. Ambitious, but hopeful. While the glider crews were doing intensive training, mass landings and so on, on the full-scale model of the battery, we received our first shock. For one day there appeared on the aerial photographs, which reconnaissance aircraft were taking every day, strange white marks which proved to be holes for poles. These marks were making their appearance all along the Normandy coast and inland, and it was clear that the Germans were constructing anti-airborne defences. I spent hours gazing at these marks, and eventually we decided that the poles must be about 20 feet high and 2 to 3 feet in diameter. This, of course, caused considerable consternation. What were the poles meant to do? Were they mined? Would they fall over? Would they smash the gliders very badly? To give us some idea, we built a replica of what we assumed the holes to be, and I remember Major John Royal landing a horse into a lane formed by the poles, and hoping that it represented something like the hazards the glider pilots would have to face.
The whole divisional plan, however, had to be changed, and it was decided to land the parachutists first, among them parachutist engineers who would have the job of blasting down the poles. Some such plan was inevitable, for even if the poles were blown down and were not laid in rows, they would still be a hazard to the gliders, which would be badly damaged and might turn over if the poles were of large diameter. We therefore arranged, for practice purposes, lanes made by putting poles end-to-end, and the gliders tried to land in the lanes. The parachutists had the job of placing the poles end-to-end after first taking them down, a sweat-making business as the poles were a tidy weight. The whole answer to the landings, so far as I was concerned, lay in the training and briefing. Nothing was left to the imagination. At 38 Group there was an officer, squadron leader Lawrence Wright, who was an architect in civil life and a brilliant and amusing artist. He conceived the wonderful idea of making a film of the model of the Normandy beachhead by using a blue filter on his 16mm camera and by holding the camera at a calculated height he produced a remarkable film for the briefing. It gave a complete picture of a glider coming in from 1,000 feet down to about 100 feet and provided a most realistic impression of what the landing in Normandy might be like. There is no doubt that it assisted the pilots no end. The glider pilot regiment had now taken real shape Number one wing was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Ian Murray, a remarkable man. He was older than most of us, an ex-guardsman who had also served in the Auxiliary Air Force before the war. In him I had a man of much experience and worth, and he was able to bring to the wing a very high standard indeed. Number two wing was under the command of Lieutenant Colonel John Place, who had originally been in the commandos and had taken part in the Sicilian campaign. The two wings were now distributed between 38 and 46 groups, A great change had come over the regiment and I felt it was really something worthwhile now, well trained, well equipped and highly organised. Nothing had been left to the imagination in the way of equipment and transport. Everything had been made available. It was, I felt, now ready for war. We thus approached the eve of the invasion of Normandy. The practised massed landings had been done and the new headquarters of the glider pilots had been tested to the full and was operational in every sense. The regiment carried out three major ground exercises before D-Day, all of which were designed to assist the wing commanders in taking up positions after landing into battle. One of these exercises had an interesting aspect. I found that on the map there was an area near Hinton, Buckland and Bampton Aston which almost completely corresponded to the area of the River Orne and the Con Canal near the village of Ronville and thus the glider pilot regiment was able to practice their withdrawal from the battle under realistic conditions. During these months, the regiment was given a signal honour. General Sir Alan Brooke, the CIGS, was appointed Colonel Commandant of the regiment, and to have such a man as this was a wonderful inspiration, especially for me. Another vivid memory of those days before the invasion was the visit of the Royal Family to the 6th Airborne Division. Those who served in the division will never forget the day. I was privileged to spend some time with the Queen and Princess Elizabeth, as she then was, and during tea, I related to them an amusing story of the occasion when two of my sergeants met Queen Mary. This story was bound up with what we called initiative training. These two sergeants were taken in a closed truck to the New Forest in full battle dress and were allowed only half a crown between them. They were given one written order, find the master of the Beaufort Hounds and ask him to sign your paybook. Somehow the two men found their way through the forest right across the countryside to Badminton House and walking up to the door rang the bell. The butler answered and was about to refuse the glider pilot's entry when a lady's voice behind him said, Don't send them away. Let me speak to them first. To the amazement of the glider pilots, they saw that it was Queen Mary. 
on being informed of the instructions they'd been given, she said, As the Duke is out, will my signature do instead? The sergeants were speechless. However, she led them into the study and wrote both the men's names and numbers down and added, certified that they came to Babington House, signed Mary R. The Queen and Princess Elizabeth seemed delighted with the story and maybe sent for the book which Queen Mary had signed. They laughed a great deal and, of course, charmed me and everyone else into the bargain. We had another visitor, General Montgomery. On this occasion, the 6th Airborne Division was drawn up in a hollow square. Beside the Royal Air Force Station at Netherhaven, the senior officers lining up in the middle of the square. The general arrived in a huge car with outriders on motorcycles bearing enormous Union Jacks. He himself was dressed in a red beret with the two badges, a gold windsheet jacket, Macintosh trousers over his battle dress and huge woollen driving gloves. After inspecting the senior officers, he said to Major General Gale, Turn the men facing inwards. I will walk through the centre of the two ranks. There was some hesitation and a strange look came over Gale's face. Then a series of rather odd orders rang out and we followed Monty as he walked slowly and silently up the line of two ranks of red-buried soldiers. Calling for his jeep, he had a microphone placed on the flat bonnet. Then he stood up on the bonnet and beckoned the entire division to gather round his jeep. Again, there was momentary hesitation, then a mad rush of officers and men who made a massive circle round his jeep. He motioned us all to sit down on the ground. Well, General Montgomery said, you have seen me and I've seen you and we should now have confidence in each other. He then gave us a stirring speech. He certainly had the right ideas for he made a deep impression on us all. His visit was not the least of the excitement which was ever present in those days, days not to be forgotten, for one of the greatest military feats in history was about to take place and the whole nation felt it in its blood. By now the glider pilot regiment was dispersed on the airfields of 38 Group and 46 Group. Number one wing had four squadrons on such stations as Harwell, Bryce Norton, Tarrant Rushton and Fairford. And number two wing had three squadrons at Broadwell, Downampney and Keyville. It can be seen that the glider pilot regiment was dispersed over a wide area and it was complicated to operate and administer. It can be seen also how necessary it was for the wings and squadrons and even flights to be independent and self-accounting. On these stations, well over 1,000 horse gliders and some 80 Hamel cars were standing a formidable force. I often feel that we were never really able to discover the glider's full potential as a weapon of war. The main reason for this was that there were insufficient gliders for the actual operations and therefore during training they could not be allowed to land in places from which it would be difficult to retrieve them or risk any likelihood of damage. As a result we became very airfield minded and did not appreciate that the glider was capable of being put down in quite extraordinary places. This I think affected the planning later on. During the training build-up, much experimental flying was being done at Farnborough to test the various combinations that might provide more efficient towing. I spent many days trying out these experimental tows. Not least of these was the Bowfighter and the Horser combination and the Spitfire and Hotspur combination. The latter was exciting and had many possibilities. Perhaps the most extraordinary experience was being towed by two Miles Masters, I myself flying a Horser glider. Another interesting experiment was the snatch, in which an aircraft flew over and snatched the glider from the ground. I tried this in an American Waco and in a British Horser. The tug aircraft was fitted up with an endless wire drum in its fuselage from which hung a hook, and the towing rope of the glider was attached to a looped nylon rope which hung between two poles about 50 feet in front of the glider. 
The tug aircraft, flying with a flat trajectory, picked up the loop with its snatch hook and snatched the glider into the air. It was a strangely exhilarating experience. At one moment we were standing still, the next we were flying through the air at 120 miles per hour. There was no jerk or feeling of unpleasantness, and I believe one could have held a glass of water in one's hand without spilling it. A few weeks before the assault, I was given the order to parade the glider pilot regiment in front of General Sir Alan Brooke at Bryce Norton RAF Station. It was a memorable day, and the first time the regiment had been on a ceremonial parade in full strength. The general inspected the ranks, and then the whole regiment marched past. It was a magnificent sight, and the marching and bearing were remarkable. General Sir Alan Brooke made a special remark to me on their bearing, and I think that he more than realised the true significance of this amazing force of men. As I watched them pass, rank upon rank, I thought back to the days when there was nothing but an old camp on a hill on Salisbury Plain at Tillshead. It was stimulating to think that this regiment, which only a few months before had been ill-trained and lacking in practice, was now an efficient force. In little over six months, it had not only re-established itself, but now possessed all the attributes required of it. Everything was there. Flying ability, discipline and battle training. And it had also won the full confidence of both the Army and the Royal Air Force, and that, perhaps, was its most hard-won achievement. I do not believe that the army as a whole ever fully appreciated quite what had happened. Possibly this was because they had little or no idea of the magnitude of the flying tasks set, and the vital necessity for flying, and more flying, and more flying practice. Nevertheless, every gun, every jeep, all the heavy ammunition, and every soldier of the Air Landing Brigade arrived safely on the field of battle because of the understanding between the Royal Air Force and the Glider Pilot Regiment. Close on D-Day, I found myself in a difficult position. The Army had decided that all serving in the 6th Airborne Division should be gated nine days before the invasion in order that they might be briefed in all the details concerning the attack. On the other hand, the Royal Air Force decided they needed only three days. As the glider crews lived on the airfields and messed with the Royal Air Force, it was impossible for these crews to be gated if the RAF were not, for it was humanly impossible to stop men talking, and thus there would be a leak of information which was deadly secret. I decided therefore to follow the RAF and brief the glider crews three days before. This irritated the higher command, and I was informed that I should be held responsible if anything went wrong, for in their opinion the glider pilots were being briefed too late. I stood by my decision, and was finally proved right by the result of the battle, that is, so far as the glider landings were concerned, which after all was my chief job. The RAF gave me full support in this problem and insisted that the glider pilots should be given the same treatment as RAF air crews. I have a feeling I paid for it in the end, one of the mistakes of being right at the wrong time. The briefing proceeded, nothing was left to chance, and I consider my staff surpassed themselves. There will always be a criticism of any headquarters, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating. On the operational side, the work of Major Andy Andrews was unsurpassed. I had selected him to be my operations officer and to be stationed at 38 Group Headquarters. His job was to control flying and training. He was tireless in his energy and worked with the Royal Air Force excellently. It was through him that the lift system was watched and developed. Also, Andrews gave me constant assistance in developing new ideas on how to improve training and to step up flying practice. The final results, the standard of flying and the amazing landings in Normandy, were very much due to his hard work, popularity and loyalty. With regard to administration, the regiment was now very well equipped and invaluable assistance and help was given to me in the complete reorganisation by Major Peter Harding. He had been my co-pilot in Sicily and had been in the sea with me and had swum ashore in the first battle. 
Now he had helped me realise completely the new conception of things. There will always be moans and criticisms when men are under stress, and Peter Harding came in for his full share of it. But in all fairness, I cannot believe that anyone who served in the regiment in the early days and during its transformation could really have grumbled at our state in 1944. The transformation had been made, and Peter Harding had had a great deal to do with the result from which all benefited. Another excellent officer was Captain Ian MacArthur, who worked endlessly to keep the office organisation going efficiently. Finally, I came to Captain George Rodzorotsky, a Polish officer of extraordinary capacity. He was my intelligence officer, and it was his duty to look after all operational orders and information. The excellence of the briefing and information glider pilots received was mainly due to his efforts. As D-Day approached, I flew round the airfields and shook hands with most of the air crews, who were keen and confident and gave me a feeling of elation. My one misfortune was that I was unable to go with them. The reason for this was that it had been decided that part of number two wing would wait behind and follow up when required. Air Vice Marshal Hollinghurst insisted that I should be available and not in the battle. I was happy, however, in the knowledge that number one wing had an intrepid leader in Ian Murray, who was to more than prove himself in the coming events. The scene was set. Thousands upon thousands of men waited in the camps quietly and confidently, cleaning rifles and brain guns, writing home, playing games, sleeping, waiting for the hour. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus.